This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. A lone gunman in Las Vegas has killed 50, over 50 now, 58 we're looking at, uh, and injured hundreds of others at an outdoor country music festival uh, out in Las Vegas. Uh, here is some chilling, chilling um, uh, recordings of what went down during that concert. You could just imagine how horrific and how how horrifying that must be. Uh, you're listening to a country music show, and then all of a sudden, uh, steady, steady machine gun fire going off as if you're in a war zone. Here's what some witnesses had to say. All of a sudden, we just heard like three or four little pop, 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 and everybody kind of looked around and said, oh, it's just firecrackers. And then we heard pop, 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 and it just kept going and going, and my husband said, that's not firecrackers. That sounds like a semi-audit rifle. Uh, and another witness. It's been a tough night for so many people here. So many people died and are wounded. It's very sad. All right, let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News, uh, and he is with us now. Reggie, what is the latest you can tell us about uh, the victims? I understand we're up to uh, 58 dead. Is that correct? Yeah, 58 dead. They're saying that the number could rise to 59, but they were hesitant to give out any more information on that. Uh, they were also saying that the number of injured, the number that they're using right now is 515. So this obviously up from the couple of hundred that we had had when this originally, uh, when this originally occurred, you know, a number of hours ago. We just heard from a number of personnel, you know, whether it was the, the mayor of Las Vegas, a couple of, uh, of state uh, representatives. We heard from the governor, uh, from, uh, from a number of people that are on scene right now, all of them saying the exact same thing. This is an unprecedented event in America. This is now the uh, worst mass shooting in the country's history. And, you know, all of them saying, we want to thank our first responders for being there because, you know, they're the ones who actually were on scene first and, and you know, were able to, to uh, fix the situation quickly. Do we know how long uh, w- once this person started shooting, how long it took for uh, police to actually get up to that hotel room and figure out all what was going on? How long well, did this it was transpire? A, it, was, it was at least 10 minutes because from witness reports, we heard that uh, the gunfire was heard for 8 to 10 minutes before it finally came to an end. So, I mean, you know, you can think about how many rounds of ammunition were fired into a crowd of 22,000 over a 10-minute period. Uh, we, heard, uh, we heard from uh, people that were on scene saying that uh, it took, you know, 10 to 15 minutes for them to actually locate what floor this was coming from before officers were able to enter and the SWAT team then opened fire. Uh, do we know, what do we know about who was in that uh, hotel room? So we're learning it's a 64-year-old man. He was, uh, he was a local from the area about an hour and 10 minutes northeast of Las Vegas in Mesquite. It's right on the Arizona border. He hadn't lived there very long. He had lived in Florida for a while. Uh, his brother had moved him back. His brother had been interviewed by a couple of the networks today and said that, you know, this, this is something that shocked him, that he didn't, you know, he didn't have any re- religious affiliations. He didn't have any political affiliations. And when he was asked, you know, did you notice any guns when you helped him move into his house? He said, sure, he had a couple of guns. All of them were legal. He may have have had a long gun, but all of them were safe. So he said that he was completely shocked, as is the rest of his family. 
what do we know or do we know anything about the weapons that he used or the weapons in that hotel room? I mean, it just sounds by the, the sounds of this audio that it was just it almost sounds like a war zone. It's just continuous fire. Yeah, police are being uh, really hesitant to give any information about what they actually found in the room, other than saying that there were, uh, you know, 10-plus weapons in possession. You know, clearly some of them were assault rifles. Clearly some of them were semi-automatics. And this is something that, you know, people will sit there and say, well, how does somebody have this kind of, uh, of weaponry in a hotel in Las Vegas? But Nevada has some of the most relaxed gun rules across the United States where you don't need to have registration, you don't need to have any kind of license, and there is no ban on having any kind of assault weapon. So... There's a lot of conversations that are happening right now about gun control and how this kind of situation is happening. Uh, has anybody commented on how high this guy was up? Like 32 floors. I mean, number one, to get that kind of weaponry up there and then to do the damage from, you know, I, I guess when you think about it, it, it's, it, it's, it would be like being perched in a tree. But has anybody commented on, on how far up and, and, and about anything more about this hotel room? No. So what they're saying right now is that they don't they aren't able to get into the head of this person right now. I mean, the mayor of Las Vegas, you know, just 15 minutes ago, sat there and said this, quote, this is a crazed lunatic and we don't know what his background is or what his reasoning was. The only thing that uh, that law enforcement are saying right now is the likelihood of him asking for a high room is so he could carry out this kind of an attack on people. Outside of that, you know, the, the question is, you know, why did he do it? And that's where there's going to be hours of surveillance footage and body camera footage that's kind of scoured over to see what's going on. You know, one thing to note, this, this suspect was in this room for three days prior to this event happening. He checked into this hotel on Thursday. That gives a lot of time to kind of plan something out. Uh, we heard uh, about another woman who may or may have been involved. Was there anybody else checked into that hotel room? Not that we know of. We know that there was a woman said to be his wife. Police are speaking to that woman right now. Outside of that, again, they're very tight-lipped on any activity that happened inside that room, both before, during, and right after the incident. What about search of his home? So there was a search of his home through the Mesquite area uh, by local police. Again, they said there was nothing found uh, that would be out of the ordinary. They evacuated houses that were nearby on either side of the house just as a precaution. But, uh, you know, according to witnesses nearby, according to reports from the scene and his family, there was nothing that would out be out of the ordinary uh, inside this house. I mean, this house is in a, in a uh, retirement community. Everyone in the community over 55 years old, not anything that anyone expected to see. Uh, so no allegations of um, involvement in religious extremism or terrorism or anything of that nature? No, no evidence of that at this point? No, according to his brother, there's no affiliations on political or religious side. You know, this, this suspect had a uh, very minor criminal background, you know, a police run-in a number of years ago, but he wasn't on any kind of list. I mean, you look, the FBI have 1,000 investigations domestically, 1,000 investigations internationally. At any given point, this man was not on any of those lists. Uh, retired? From what we know, his brother had said that, uh, you know, he, he was uh, actively retired. He, he was not actively employed. He, they, there's no kind of, you know, discussion as to what this man did prior to, to this. But he lived in an, a retirement community, and that, that's all the information that we have on him right now. And no one knew anything or, or suspected why he was in Vegas at that time? No, this is, this is coming as a complete shock to everybody in his local neighborhood and his family at the same time. Any hi uh, history of mental illness? That hasn't been discussed as of yet. I mean, questions are being asked to the, to the brother who was outside his home giving interviews to the media. And, you know, his brother's finding, you know, it hard to just answer simple questions as to, I don't know why he did this, you know, saying, quote, my brother just killed a whole bunch of people. I'm not sure what happened.
Um, President Trump has uh, held a press conference uh, reaction. Some have said he hasn't used the word terrorism. Uh, lots of people are saying if this had been, a, you know, re- related to a religious group, we, we, we'd be, you know, um, talking about Muslims and religion, uh, religious extremism. Uh, when it's domestic terrorism like this, people, you know, rather than call it terrorism, will call it uh, mental illness or, or use some other excuse. Any reaction like that down there? Uh, you know, everybody's just kind of going with what the president said. You know, nobody's, well, at least when it comes to what Donald Trump had said during his press conference, you know, he used words like pure evil and that, you know, these are kinds of things that we don't want to have happen. He didn't use any of the conversa- or any of the words that he had spoken, say, during the San Bernardino event, you know, c- criticizing former President Barack Obama for not saying things like radical Islam. Uh, you know, this was a, it was a somber press conference held by the president. He gave his thoughts on it. He used more kind of religious tone to kind of ease the... The, uh, the, the, you know, the stress that are on people down there. But, you know, we're going to hear from him again because the president is traveling to uh, Las Vegas on Wednesday, the day after he's uh, supposed to go to Puerto Rico for a, for a walkthrough. So, I mean, we'll hear again from the president over the next 48 hours and see if he, you know, continues to use the same somber messaging. Uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, this is sort of a different foray for uh, President Trump. It'll be interesting to see how he handles these natural disasters or, in this case, uh, domestic violence. Yeah, and it's a lot of things to happen all at once. I yeah. mean, you know, he's got this, you know, ongoing hurricane recovery through uh, the southern U.S., along with Puerto Rico, and including now, uh, you know, an incident that's involving, you know, the largest mass shooting in American history. This is going to be a test for the president to see how he's able to weigh these things on his shoulders and, you know, make sure that he's getting the message across and getting his, uh, getting his agenda across without, you know, angering one side or the other. Uh, what is life like in Las Vegas? Are things relatively back to normal? Obviously, uh, this had closed down the strip for a while, uh, travel, that sort of thing. What's life like in Las Vegas today? The airport had been closed for a while because of just the proximity to the strip. That's now reopened, and we heard from uh, emergency officials last hour saying that most of the strip has been reopened. It's just the area directly in front of the Mandalay Bay Hotel that is closed off right now because of an active investigation. Uh, Plus, they still need to do uh, recovery of the victims that are inside. So the direct area outside of the hotel likely closed off another 12 hours outside of that life starting to get back to normal if you can right now for the rest of the strip the hotel also reopened right now with the exception of that floor that the suspect was on uh one uh, listener emails know if there's any alcohol or drugs involved in any of this no so in a situation like this we haven't been told of any kind of drug activity but you will have the atf uh, in conjunction with the FBI carrying out this investigation only because uh, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms are all under one jurisdiction right now. So they will be in charge of the investigation along with the FBI. What they find later on will become a matter of evidence and then a matter of public knowledge. And at this time, no reason to believe that there was anyone else involved in any of this. No, according to officials on scene, this is a lone wolf. This is a one-person attack. The, the, the person who was uh, involved in this incident uh, is no longer alive, uh, apparently taking his own life. And outside of that, they're saying this situation is now under control. Uh, what about people who were in that hotel on that floor when all of this was going on? Would they be, they must have been aware, or, or, or uh, was there any lockdown or, or whatever at the hotel when this was all happening? So the hotel was put under a lockdown. We haven't actually heard as to what happened to the people on the floor, whether they fled rooms while this was happening, because, you know, a lot of them may have been asleep at this time or or down in the casino, so we don't know where the people actually were on that floor. The rest of the floors were put onto a lockdown, people told to stay in place uh, as police were able to get into the building or while they were getting into the building. Uh, Any sort of pattern as to where this person was firing? Did he aim at the stage 
at all? Did he just start opening up on, on, on the big crowd of people? What was there? Did there? Did it seem to be random? Was there any sort of focus at all? Did, does it appear? No, it appears that this was simply just a random attack. I mean, when you have an assault rifle that has, you know, ammunition that's got, you know, 50, 60 bullets on it, you need to have some kind of control in order to fire that gun off. But this was apparently just, according to officials, just kind of fired in a random position. When you've got 22,000 plus people sitting below you, I mean, this is it, this is literally just being at a, at a shooting range. You're just kind of targeting whatever's in front of you. And when you've got that many people around you, this there was no con- or no confirmation that this was a targeted against you know any of the uh, musicians on stage or anyone in particular. This was just a random act of firing. And how is this being digested in the United States today? Well, you know, this is this is now the biggest shooting, uh, the, the biggest mass shooting in U.S. history, and that's where people are focused right now. I mean, you have a lot of people saying, "Why aren't you know? Why isn't security levels upped at a hotel? Why isn't there a security issue, uh, security level upped at a, an open air concert?" Well, you have other people saying, "Well, why aren't we talking about gun control right now?" And yeah. this is what happens at each one of these situations. You get these two sides looking at each other, saying, "Well, we don't want to talk about what each other side is talking about, just our own thing." There are a lot of Democrats right now on Capitol Hill saying this is another instance of needing to talk about gun control. But you have a lot of Republicans, a lot of them backed by the NRA, saying, no, we don't need to talk about gun control. We just need to talk about making things safer. Uh, The fact that more people, uh, more Americans kill Americans with guns than any terrorist ever does in in that country, any terrorist, uh, you know, action of any sort, no matter how how, uh, tragic they are, uh, is that correlation made, or does that debate just go on and will it forever? The debate is it's circular. I mean, like I said, you'll always have somebody asking, why aren't we talking about gun control? And then you'll have uh, you know, a strong lobbyist like the NRA saying, we don't need to talk about gun control. We need to talk about just making sure that people are using their guns in a safe way or using their guns for the way that they're supposed to be used. It's a debate that's been going on for decades, and it will likely continue. Thank you for joining us, Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based in Washington. And, of course, make sure you're watching Global News tonight for all the latest. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Over the weekend, uh, I don't know if this is a surprise, if we should be surprised. It certainly wasn't supposed to happen on the first ballot, I don't think. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has now been chosen to lead the federal NDP party. Uh, Here's a clip from the convention. I'm officially launching my campaign to be the next Prime Minister of Canada. Here's a reaction to his victory. I'm excited to, to bring our message of love and courage, of this optimistic way we can build a more just and inclusive Canada. I want to take that message across the country. We did it for two and a half short months. I want to take that for the next two years and build the foundation for laying the first ever new democratic government in Canada and becoming the next Prime Minister of Canada. Uh, joining it, uh, joining us is Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor, and uh, was there. Tim, thanks for taking the time to join us. Is this Trudeau 2.0? Oh, hang on a sec. Oh, oh, oh. sorry, Tim, I, I didn't hit you there. Is this Trudeau 2.0? Uh, that's one way to look at it. And I also got to give you props. He does have better suits than Don Mulcair. Uh, <laughs> that is a pretty low bar, though. Uh, the the argument against him from the old line uh, candidates, the Charlie Angus backers, and so on, is that uh, the party would be foolish to try to out Trudeau Trudeau in 2019. Uh, I never agreed with that. Uh, I, this is more than just uh, trying to be Trudeau 2.0. Scott, this is actually historic. 
Uh, he has now become the first visible minority to lead a federal party. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, this is significant uh, for a number of reasons. This is a guy who's actually um, lived uh, uh, racial oppression because he looked differently. He's been uh, stopped by police, he says, uh, 11 times in his life. He's been carded. The first time was when he was 17. And he's going to be running against a guy who last week, during the tax reform debate, Justin Trudeau referred to his family fortune. Mm. So um, this is the first time you're going to have uh, a leader from a racial minority being able to talk to other racial minorities from the same level plane. And uh, that could be highly significant going forward. Uh, obviously, lots of layers to this onion. Let's get to the convention itself. What was the buzz? Did it was it was it obvious something something new, something different? Change was happening. I mean, yeah, uh, this party's been comatose for the last couple of uh, years. It seems this is the uh, that's the the biggest thing for the parties. They can finally turn the page. Uh, comatose, moribund, whatever you want to call it, they have been largely irrelevant uh, since the 2015 campaign. When, as you recall, they went in with an odds-on chance to win this thing and uh, uh, tanked badly in, in the um, last, uh, the waning weeks. It really hurt morale. It hurt fundraising. Memberships lapsed. Then they uh, they turned viciously on Mulcair and turfed him out in uh, April of 2016, but let him come back and lead the party instead of getting uh, in the house, instead of getting an interim leader. So, uh, you know, with all due respect to Tom Mulcair, they should have, they shouldn't have let him come back and lead that caucus. It just, it just took the the air out of everything. So, yeah, you got to finally. Um, I'll tell you, the buzz in there. Yeah, there was no doubt that Singh was going to win. Uh, I talked to his people before the vote. Uh, Singh can be pretty brazen, very uh, very cocksure, but they thought they got their vote out, and if they got his vote out, they were going to win it on the first ballot. And the body language of the other contenders are coming in. You could sort of tell it. Uh, I think they knew that they were coming to their own execution, whereas when, you know, Singh enters a room, uh, people cheer, the music starts, people want to mm. shake his hand, and this is this is one of the reasons that they, they chose this guy. They, crowds follow him. He's got charisma. So you couldn't say that about the other three. Uh, what does this say about the direction of the party? Because uh, obviously post-Jack Layton, NDP, there was, you know, some divisiveness of, of whether the party stays more mainstream as where Jack had taken it or get back to the roots. Uh, you know, the whole Leap Manifesto, all of this stuff. I mean, it just seems bizarre that we've gone from that extreme to this. One thing that Jack Layton did do finally for the party uh was to get over this mindset that somehow winning power was bad, the party was had been formed to be the moral compass or the conscience of Parliament. In 2012, after Jack's death, when they handed it over to Tom Mulcair, they saw Mulcair as the guy who could win, who could form government. So um, Jagmeet Singh is staying uh, true to that, uh, to that principle. This is not, uh, you know, bring back the moral conscience and being the the honest broker from the third party perch he wants to win clearly he's got a lot uh, more ground to make up than Mulcair had when he when he inherited the leadership in 2012 but with so much being talked about right down to uh, Singh's uh, campaign slogan which sounded very much like Jack Layton's dying words it's almost like the entire era between uh, Layton's death and the Singh uh, uh, hmm. anointment yesterday has just been wiped out. Nobody wanted to talk about Mulcair or what happened any longer. There was a palpable sense of relief 
in that hall that they can turn this page uh, and and go with a guy who, who could be a game changer. Let me ask you this, Tim. If if considering and you talked about how much time had passed since the last election and then bringing uh, Malcare back, if none of this had happened, if they had just got right to it, would Singh be where he is? I mean, did the, did the party sort of need this two year mourning before? Oh my goodness, this bright spark walks in the room. No, a lot of it was just logistics. I think that well, I know they didn't want to do this before the uh, the election of BC last May because. Uh, they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want their uh, their backers in uh, in British Columbia, which is a, an area of strength, to be um, preoccupied with a provincial vote. So uh, there was that kind of timing. Um, it, it it was well known that Jagmeet Singh was going to run for this post for about a year. So if he had to move it up, he uh, I, I think we would have seen the same result. Um, we've gone through half the Trudeau mandate with the NDP being irrelevant. So. Um, he's got half a mandate, no seat, no seat in the Commons, of course, and half a mandate to try to bring this party back. But, you know, with all the comparisons to the Leighton uh, victory, you know, an outsider coming in and steamrolling past more experienced candidates, and they won almost exactly the same amount um, of votes on the first ballot. Uh, they were juggernauts, outsiders. The difference is, even after what happened in 2015, Singh still uh, inherits a party that's got 44 seats, 16 in Quebec, 8 in Ontario. People forget Jack Layton inherited a party that won 8.5% of the vote, had 13 seats in the Commons, one in Ontario, and none in Quebec. So even though things look rather bleak for the New Democrats now, in comparison, these are like salad days for, uh, for Singh. What about his chances in Quebec? That has raised some red flags for some in the party and obviously created some divisiveness as well. This is going to be, I think, what we have to watch. Um, one would like to think that by 2019, the uh, the beard and the multicolored turban and the Kirpan uh, become invisible to voters. Uh, but that could be a tough sell in Quebec. Uh, but he has he has tried to talk to Quebecers uh, as a um, a racial minority, uh, talking about uh, the linguistic minority. He's trying to reach out to them. That the problem. For the uh, NDP in Quebec, uh, they go beyond uh, this secular, secularism debate and, and the turban. The party has just uh, hit a wall in Quebec. Uh, the membership's down. They didn't raise any money there. The orange wave of uh, Jack Layton and the breakthrough in Quebec in 2011 is now ancient history. So they have a lot of rebuilding to do there. They don't have much of a profile. Even one of the leadership candidates, Guy Caron, who ran a... a, a good campaign to finish last, has very little profile in Quebec. So they've got a lot of work to do in, in Quebec. But, um, uh, you know, Quebec is a, Quebec is very, very hard to predict. Yeah. It was it was 2015 when the popular uh, uh, conventional wisdom in Quebec was that they'd never vote for anybody named Trudeau. And, mm. you know, look what happened. So I guess, you know, it's, a lot of things can change in two years, I guess. You talked about where the party is. Obviously, lots of attention on the leader, young, charismatic, uh, stylish, the GQ, all of that. But he's still yeah. a socialist. How does he sell this to mainstream Canada? Well, uh, I'm not sure he is a socialist, I guess is what I will tell you. He's uh, actually a pretty conventional uh, New Democrat. He did he brought in some new policies like decriminalizing all drugs um, and uh, he wants to eliminate all racial profiling in Canada. I mean, these are pretty ambitious um, uh, targets, uh, 
but he's pretty doctrinaire when it comes to the NDP. He he didn't want to get too far out there on the left. The leftist candidate, the socialist candidate, would have been Nikki Ashton, who finished third. Um, look, I mean, how how do you sell it? How did Jack Layton sell it in 2011? You, you get a brand. Uh, you work uh, hard, which he will. He's young. He's got a lot of energy. Uh, you get out of... Uh, he, I think it's an advantage he doesn't have a seat in the House of Commons because... Why is that? Well, we can see uh, Tom Mulcair was... Uh, um, canonized for his work in the House of Commons and what a brilliant opposition leader he was. Mm-hmm. And that got them a third-place finish in 2015. Mm. You know, I used to live in that bubble, and we would watch Question Period every day and go, wow, man, Mulcair, he could be a prime minister. Look at him take uh, slice and dice Stephen Harper. Uh, you know, we and some uh, shut-ins were the only people watching that. He did get, <laughs> he did get some clips on the national news. But he, the mm. thing should uh, tear a page from the Trudeau playbook. Trudeau was a third-party leader. And uh, those around him made the very logical decision. It was a majority government, as it is now. You're the third party. The government's not going to fall. You're stuck over in the corner of the commons. You get uh, uh, a couple of questions when people aren't paying attention anymore, and that's the end of your day in terms of, you know, camera time. Get out of the bubble. Get out of the commons. In this case, like Leighton, you know, you can stand in the foyer there and, and, and have questions tossed at you. But the votes aren't there. He should get out and continue to travel the country like he did building this um, leadership uh, victory and get out where the votes are because the votes aren't in the foyer of the House of Commons. What are the Liberals thinking about today? I mean, is this Singh versus Trudeau? Where does this leave Andrew Scheer? Uh, let's start with the with the Liberals. What are they thinking? Are they, you know, because that was you know the selfies and the young guy. I mean, that was a big part of Trudeau's uh, charisma and, and attraction. What about uh, wh- how how are they viewing this? Do you think? Uh, well, I guess here's where we mentioned that Trudeau will be the oldest, uh, actually yeah. by quite a bit, the oldest leader uh, in the 2019 campaign. No, but there, there were Liberal MPs there yesterday. You know, parties sent the, the MPs into spin reporters and schmooze them and so on. They, they claim that they're not, uh, they're not afraid at all. But uh, uh, this worst outcome for the Liberals. I mean, with all due respect to Charlie Angus, if uh, the party had chosen Charlie Angus, I don't think anybody in, no. uh, in Liberal headquarters would be tossing and turning. This guy could be a threat, um, and uh, there's a lot of growth potential there. You know, I have. I, Living uh, now in uh, Toronto and, and not uh, in Ottawa, where all this is known, when you, when you talk about the NDP leadership race, people didn't know there was an NDP leadership race. But sometimes they say, oh, you mean that Jagmeet Singh thing? Yeah. He has a profile. Mm-hmm. He's known. And this uh, this is, a, uh, I think, a shrewd branding exercise by the NDP. Now, you ask about Andrew Scheer. Logically, you would think that... Uh, Thing playing in like the 905 and uh, areas where the NDP has never played before, liberal strongholds. That uh, when the progressive vote splits, uh, it's it's room for the conservatives to to move up the middle, and that the conservatives should be very happy about this. Possibly, uh, you also find instances where that theory uh, just doesn't work. That the battles become uh, liberals and uh, new Democrats, and there is no credible conservative there. So, uh, you know, Andrew Scheer, he's also only 38. Jagmeet Singh is 38. 
But one of them looks a lot and acts a lot older than 38. And I'll leave you to decide which one I'm talking Exactly. About. So, I mean, if you're the conservatives, are you sitting there and looking, oh, man, we're dead going into this one. Like, you know, we got to get a new haircut or something. I mean, you know, again, when the last election was over, uh, the conservatives said they were going to get warm, more warm and fuzzy, more... You know, less of what we're seeing, and and boy, now you know, especially with with these new can or with Jagmeet Singh now a candidate, uh, they look even older, don't they? Yeah, well, like you told me he was thirty eight. I would have pegged him as older than that. Yeah. Meaning well, Andrew Shear. Yeah, you're absolutely. right. Yeah, the um, we're we're back to that argument that we just um, were talking about a couple minutes ago. Andrew Shear's actually been performing very well now as a Commons uh, since he's become the leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if anybody's noticing. They've done a great job of. Um, of uh, messing with the liberals on on this tax reform uh, proposal and so on, but again, you know, uh, so he's he's become a. Uh, it looks like he's going to become an effective opposition leader. So was Tom Mulcair. I mean, that's that's part and parcel of the House of Commons Parliament sadly becoming less and less relevant uh, in the day to day cut and thrust of politics in this country uh, over the years. I spent many years there. Um, committee hearings, question period, nobody, uh, part of it is there's not enough bodies to cover it anymore. Hmm. Uh, part of it is the Canadians just tune out uh, from that stuff. So, I, I, you know, uh, I go back to the point about Singh getting out and, and meeting voters and uh, going to events and shaking hands, uh, because um, I'm not sure Shearer is going to get a big bounce because he's been speaking up for farmers on the tax reform in the House of Commons. Uh, where does this leave the Charlie Anguses of the party? Is this a new NDP? Is this a new beginning? Is this a whole new start? It certainly does seem to clarify direction. Well, say a couple things about Charlie Angus. Um, Angus is a is an old-style um, friend of the working class, the miners, the steelworkers, uh, kind of uh, new Democrat. Um, he, he also fell prey to this... Um, uh, this age thing. He's 54. But Does he represent the old NDP, uh, what it was back in the 70s, opposed to what it is now, the, the face of Jagmeet Singh? That might be a bit extreme, but not uh, not inaccurate. Uh, this is this is the grassroots NDP, and this would have, under Charlie Angus would have been an NDP that would have fought the good game for workers and indigenous rights and the environment, but wouldn't have been electable at all. So yeah, in many ways, I have to accept your premise. This is this is the new NDP under Jagmeet Singh, or at least I think it will be. Uh, the more traditional um, Labor Day marching, uh, can't touch me, I'm part of the union NDP, would have been personified in Charlie Angus, hmm. who got far fewer votes, I think, than, than many of us anticipated. Uh, you talked about uh, getting out, shaking the hands, kissing the babies, keeping the momentum alive. Other than that, what is his biggest challenge as he moves forward? The learning curve from going from uh, provincial politics to the much larger stage. Uh, he's got great political instincts. Uh, he knows how to use social media. That that one video of him um, uh, with the uh, the racist heckler went viral around the world. But he has to. Um, he I think he showed a couple of the early debates um, that he needed a better grasp of um, party policy and federal issues. Uh, he'll grow into that in many respects. That's what people said of Justin Trudeau when he was running for the liberal leadership. Um, I don't know if he's ready for it or, you know, will he fill that suit? Well, people do grow into jobs, uh, and he will be able to um, uh, grow into the job uh, away from the uh, the bubble of getting up in the House of Commons and, and, and 
asking questions, and I think that's a good thing, actually. So I would think that's his largest, his biggest challenge. The other challenge, of course, is it's actually a challenge for Canadian voters um, that they can see beyond the uh, the beard and the, and the kerpan and the multi-hued turban. Um, and on election day, that stuff is invisible. It's not an impediment to voting for somebody, and he gets judged as he should on policy, platform, message, authenticity, um, and that um, his his headwear. Uh, is not a factor uh, when people cast ballots. Uh, he seemed to, instead of hiding this, he's obviously proud of it and, and promoting it. I mean, you know, wears flamboyant colors, this sort of thing. I mean, that seems to be working in his favor. Well, you know, that's, it's interesting because I'm just writing this today. It would be nice if Canadians no longer saw it, but he also has to use it as a message, and it gets back to what I said uh, at the outset. He is a, a, a racial minority, yeah. and one of his strengths is going to be as a racial minority talking to other racial minorities who generally don't vote, and that that could be a pretty big voting pool if uh, if people who have been you know pulled over, mistreated by cops, or have known uh, racial discrimination, unlike Justin Trudeau who talks about his family fortune, and Andrew Shearer, I'm sure uh, has never been pulled over for being too white. Um, <laughs> This is, this you, is you bring major... up a very you bring up a very valid point about the background that that uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, was raised in and the one uh, Trudeau. I mean, they can really they can really capitalize on that, can't they? Sure. Last as I said last week, Trudeau was talking about his family fortune, yeah. and a poor choice of words when he was talking about uh, having his assets in a in a blind trust. Uh, Justin Trudeau uh, was a child of privilege. This is a guy who uh, tells a story about uh, being carded because he pulled his car over at Casa Loma in Toronto to make a phone call. Um, he can speak from real life uh, street experience, and that's something that neither Sheer nor Trudeau can do. So, of course, he, 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 you don't want to exploit uh, your religion, um, but you also don't want to downplay it. This is who he is, and the party chose him. So it, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a, a um, uh, tightrope he's got to walk, because... You don't want to overemphasize it to the point where it does become an impediment for some voters, but but it, it is who you are, so you also shouldn't shy away from who you are, and he won't. Tim, where can we read you next? Uh, the Toronto Star uh, later today on thestar.com uh, about a number of things that we just discussed. Tim Harper, freelance writer and editor. Tim, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. I appreciate the call, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. All right, uh, we, all, we often hear this, uh, especially at the beginning of the year, uh, September, uh, October, back to school, and homecoming, and uh, all that sort of fun stuff that goes along with it uh, if you're on a university campus. If you're uh, off the university campus and you're living in rental housing in someone's neighborhood, sometimes it becomes a different story. Uh, as it did over this past uh, weekend uh, in the Westdale area. Uh, four, to five, uh, four to five student rental houses pulled together and a, threw a, uh, a big homecoming bash, which was the biggest ever apparently thrown at McMaster. How do we keep track of this? Are there stats? Uh, neighbors were concerned about the behavior of the, relati- uh, of the revelers uh, and, of course, uh, 
you know, it's all property in the sense of the university. So whose responsibility is all of this? Uh, to talk more about it all, uh, Chuke Ebay is with us, President McMaster Student Union, and is on the line with us now. Chuke, thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Good afternoon, Scott. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Uh, so what is the student view on this? Is it your problem or is it, um, or is it not? I mean, it didn't happen on school property. How concerned are you about this? I mean, it's uh, students who are attending the party. This was a student community. Um, there are neighbors. I think it's a concern of everybody in the community. And we view community as the students who live there, the McMaster University, uh, Hamilton Police Services, the city of Hamilton, and most importantly, the neighbors who live in that neighborhood. So I think whose problem it is or whose concern it is, I think it's a, it's a concern for everybody in, in the, the Hamilton community. How much can you say, though, uh, when in fact it isn't on your property? How, how much control do you have or options do you have uh, with students when they're not on campus? Uh, so our our priority is, and it has always been the, the the safety of the students who live in that neighborhood. So part of the the work that we do when students come on campus is we provide them with messaging, with programming about responsible drinking, alcohol awareness, and uh, different forms of violence that might happen, whether wherever you are on campus, off campus. And our goal is to provide everybody with all the information that they need to make better decisions wherever they go, however they choose to spend their time. Uh, so our staff has always been to provide people with the, with with the most information, and now they have the information they decide. To, uh, what they want to do with that. So where is this uh, now? What, wh- how does the university process this information uh, the Monday after? So we, we've always been in conversations with our community partners, university partners. Uh, so then we're just going through regular processes about debriefing with homecoming. Uh, this is something that has always been uh, the tradition and uh, the, the, just the, the, the chain of incidences that happen here, whatever the headlines are, uh, whatever the conversation is. After every homecoming, after Welcome Week, uh, we debrief with community partners, we debrief with university partners. Uh, so we're just going through the process of getting feedback and getting all the information uh, before we move on to any issue. But wh- again, what sort of tools do you have in your toolkit here, Chuke? I mean, what what can you do, do you think? I mean, it's certainly not new. Uh, this happens a lot. So uh, what sort of tools do you have in the box that you can use here? Uh, so the university has their formal chains of the student code of conduct and all, all the processes that come through that. Uh, the student union uh, has always been providing uh, information to, to any student who needs that information going forward. And Hamilton, the city of Hamilton has their bylaws. The Hamilton Police Services have all the information that they use to uh, make decisions on any uh, incidences whatsoever. Homecoming incidences or incidences that happen throughout the entire school year. So uh, the, the incidences that happened over the, um, over the weekend don't change any of that. All our processes remain the same and if we have any concerns any reports how uh, they go through the process depending on where they have been reported to is this in your opinion a Hamilton police issue um, I would not call it a Hamilton police issue in fact uh, we I remember getting a call um, on the, the Sunday afternoon uh, by one of the um, the, the by the the uh, security uh, the chief um, community officer for Ward One the Hamilton for the Hamilton Police Services uh, we have a fantastic working relationship with her uh, with the special constables at McMaster with the head of police uh, head of security here at McMaster uh, so the student union and the Hamilton Police Services have a, a significant working relationship and once uh, she was informed about the incidences she called me right away and I made my way down uh, to deal with to see how we can help so I don't think there's an issue with the Hamilton Police Services on this particular issue uh, we're debriefing as always and we're going to be giving them any feedback and we'll be in conversation uh, evaluating our plans uh, to make sure that we're making the best decisions going forward. So you have talked to Hamilton Police Service on this? 
Yeah, so we were literally on the ground together. I was with Amanda, I believe that's her name, and um, some of the uh, senior officers. And I was also in conversations with just the, uh, the, the officers on the street. And we've, we, we plan with them. Uh, so there's several uh, several committees that we sit we sit on. One is the President's Advisory Committee, Committee for Community Relations. Uh, so when we are making homecoming plans, mostly on campus, uh, they are part of uh, those plans. And when we need external resources, we ask, and if they can, they offer. Uh, we have other programs that we partner with the Hamilton Police Services on. Uh, but again, this is an issue that was not on university property. So. Um, the, the processes for that are different because we didn't plan or were not involved in, in the uh, execution of or implementation of that specific uh, block party. So you were on the ground there, Chuke. Why didn't police do more to, to quash this? I think, though, and this is me being a bit frank, I think the police, uh, I, and I'm not, I'm not an expert whatsoever in, in the field, but I think the way they handled the, 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 the party was, was they did a pretty good job. Um, in making sure that it was contained, uh, and when the party started to dwindle a bit, they sent in their crowd control and, and asked students to leave the place. Um, when there were incidences that happened with people who were a bit more intoxicated, uh, the students were comfortable enough to, to walk up to the police officers and ask for help, and most of the police officers that I saw there were very responsive to support the students who were on the ground. So I think they did help, uh, but as I mentioned before, we're reviewing our processes to make sure that things that were missed, were omitted, were not seen, um, are are fixed going forward, and we're also going to be going through a process with them to get feedback on the things they saw that uh, we might not have seen. And it was uh, it was Amanda who gave me a call to tell me to come down to Deerwood, and uh, we were really collaborative and supportive throughout the entire process. And after that, uh, they were also there and they saw all the students on the street who just came out of their homes at the clean up the entire street and to make sure that the the, 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 the block was spotless. And I made sure that I didn't leave until there was no trash on the floor and we cleaned the entire uh, the entire block up. So the Hamilton Police Services was, was helpful in that sense, but we're reviewing our processes going forward to see if there's anything we could do, be- we could do better. So were you there uh, on the Saturday or the Sunday the day after? I was there on, what was the block party? That was the... The Saturday, I believe. Yeah, so I was on the Saturday, yeah. So I, I was called to come by the Hamilton Police Services uh, crime officer for Ward 1, Amanda. And so once she invited me to come over, I, I met with her. I met with the deputy ch- police officer who was over there. And then we just talked. We debriefed about strategy. But this, uh, was, on the, this was on the Saturday. This was on the Saturday. Yeah, this was on the Saturday. So what did you see when you were there, Chuke? What was it like? I saw, uh, I saw one of the calmest... Um, most respectful block parties I'd seen in a very long time. I heard that it was pretty tame in the in the sense that yes, there was lots of people there having a great time, but no one yeah. got rowdy. Uh, pardon me, do you say, but, you say that but, again? But no, but it, it doesn't appear that anyone got rowdy or fighting no, or any of that stuff. Nope, it was just a bunch of people having a good time on the street. So and it was very tame, very respectful. Uh, once the party was, once uh, the crowd control came in, uh, we cleaned up the entire street on the Sunday morning as well with the MSC. We organized another group of people to clean up Westdale. So uh, the kids did go in and clean up the mess afterwards. Yeah, we cleaned the entire place up. So will this, what, what do you do when this happens again? Because it's going to happen again. 
And, and so again, it sounds it sounds like you got lots of meetings, you got lots of partners, you got lots of planning, but it happens. So at the end of the day, does that mean it's working? It's not working? Do you do you, do you stop these? Do you keep them controllable? How how, how do you move forward from? Yeah, this? And, and to answer that question, I think it's important that we give it a bit more context. So um, last year we had worked with the Inglewood Westall Community Association uh, when we we're planning homecoming, and uh, part of the thing they told us was on Saturday mornings uh, things get a little bit rowdy. So we made a we made a brand new program. Uh, and we put it right in the morning to draw students away from uh, their, their the neighborhoods and to come to McMaster. So our goal was always to bring students uh, to Mac. After we worked with them last year, they then told us that, well, the morning programs were, were not the problem, but was the evening that we had a challenge in. So what ended up happening was this year, we moved the morning program to the evening. And we're going to be meeting with them again to review our entire plan. Uh, homecoming is largely planned with our community partners, and this is just part of our process. So now that we've learned this, we're going to go back to the table and say, now we have one more year of new information. How best can we plan uh, to bring students to campus and to make sure that we're, 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 we're creating events and programs that have high entertainment values that bring all max students to campus. That is our goal, uh, to make sure that pe- the people in the community are not um, negatively impacted by... Uh, so you want to have the... You, you want the you want, you'd rather have the kids on campus enjoying homecoming rather than being on a block party somewhere. That has always been our goal. That but has from, but my guess... We have giving with, but my uh, guess is it, it made it out to the street because things got too strict in Mac. So how do you, again, how do you, how do you balance this? And, and, and meetings and, and what have you, uh, I, I don't understand how it's not going to happen again. Don't mean to put the boots to you here, but when you get things like the roads blocked, I mean, were there permits for this? I mean, if anybody else did this, we'd probably uh, get in a lot of trouble. So, uh, you know, like, were there permits for these parties at all? I mean, it just seemed that it was allowed to go on. And again, I can understand that, and I don't mean to be, you know, pooping on anybody's party or anything, but, you know, if you're a homeowner in that area and you can't get to your house or people are are blocking roads, I mean, it does become a safety issue. Right, and and we're going to get that information from the Hamilton Police Services once we have it. Uh, from my understanding, uh, there were no tickets given out at that uh, that specific uh, um, party, but I know that they're still doing a lot more research and information gathering. So once we have that information, uh, I'll be able to comment on that. But right now, I literally don't have it. But what we can commit to uh, is if we know that we can do better. And going forward, we're, we're going to continue working with our partners in a much more intentional way uh, to provide the programming that students need on campus. And maybe it's a different type of program that we haven't tried before, but the student union is fully committed. McMaster students are fully committed uh, to making sure that we're able to contain these type of uh, activities on campus and provide the high entertainment value that students need on campus. Uh, that being said, um, by the time this was over, um, um, does the university view this as something bad? I mean, how do you, how do you, or something that went off, it was, that uh, was pretty successful. Nobody got hurt. Uh, how, as parties go, I understand it got quite rowdy in Guelph. It's not quite that bad here. Is that accurate? So we, we can fully account for the activities that happened on campus. Uh, so we had two concerts. We had the football game. We had a couple other programs that happened um, on campus. And uh, part of the things that we do when we have programs on campus is we provide emer- emergency first response. How uh, We provide a support group for anybody who needs any type of emergency po- support. Uh, we provide Hamilton Police Services on campus. We try to contain all the fun 
on campus. So we can fully account for everything that happened here. Right. Um, but for the things that happened off campus, we're still in that. This is just literally the the Monday after homecoming, right? So yeah. uh, we're still in the information gathering phases. So once that inf- information is available, then we'll love to we'll love to fully co- comment on that. Uh, later tonight, we'll be working with um, we'll be we'll be with the Ainsleywood uh, Westville Community Association, uh, getting things from their perspective. We'll be speaking to the students, getting things from their perspective. I'll be speaking to the neighborhoods on the block, uh, the neighbors, the permanent residents, getting things from their perspective. The counselor. So all everything that happened on campus, we're just uh, gathering information. Uh, but for the things that happened on campus, we think uh, homecoming was fantastic. But we fully recognize that wasn't the same thing for the permanent residents who live around McMaster. And, you know, this is sort of an ongoing issue. I mean, anytime you're going to get student housing, the chances of this thing, this sort of thing happening is is, is pretty uh, prominent. No, Chuke? I mean, how, how, how else can you, what more can you do here when you've got a neighborhood that's right next to the campus like that? Yeah, but it's also important to just remember the, the amount of value that as students we're adding to the to the neighborhood and to the community as well. So from all our thousands of hours of volunteer to contributions that we bring into the, the local economy. So it's it's that um it's that constant balance of what are the benefits of having uh, students on campus, but what are some of the things that we can improve on and we're continuing to have those conversations with the city of Hamilton. Is there, do you think it'll ever get to the point where everybody just chills out and all this stuff? And by that, like, it doesn't seem like it was overly rowdy a party, uh, whereas, you know, once a year we expect this and homecoming and then you move on. Right. Is there some sort of balance you can come to between the neighborhood and and yourselves where this is just, you know, rather, you know, we can't beat them, we're going to join them sort of thing? Yeah, well, the, the 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 funny thing about that is, for many of the programs that we host on campus, they're fully open to the members of the local community. We invite them for light of the night, which is the big block party that we have on campus. We try to make that as a, much of a communal celebration as possible, which is one quick point. Second quick point is that homecoming is one blip in a really long relationship that we have with our community partners, and we have a constant relationship with uh, the local community associations, the BIAs, and for the most part, these relationships are fantastic ones, and we are always in communication. All always in conversation. So it's important to put, not to undermine homecoming at all, and also to, to fully account for uh, some of the hardships that the neighborhoods, uh, that the people who live in those neighborhoods felt. Uh, but the context is so important. And I think overall, uh, the contribution of students into Hamilton, into this local neighborhood, is much more significant than a couple of days of discomfort to members of the community. Not to undermine that at all. We completely acknowledge it. And we're working to do better. But we have a fantastic relationship with, with the student union, with McMaster students, and the local Westdale Inglewood community as it stands. Uh, what about campuses, you know, like downtown now, because you guys are downtown now and in other places? Do you see this um, happening in other spots, or is it just mostly on the main campus? Um, I, we haven't seen, at least to my knowledge, uh, we haven't seen as much... Um, concerns uh, with, with with issues regarding to students in the downtown area, uh, but but also because those places are districted, so we know where the yeah. party district is there. Yeah. Uh, we know that we can go to Bayfront Park. We know that we can go to Hamilton Public Library. Uh, but also remember, for the most part, students are on campus in libraries studying. Yeah. I woke up this morning when I came to work at 9 a.m. The libraries were, all, were already packed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a fine balance that I think we have to strike. 
Chuke eBay has been with us, President McMaster Student Union, uh, talking about a nice little street party that happened uh, around Dalewood, of course, uh, with homecoming and, of course, everybody's concern uh, as we move forward to keep these things safe for uh, everybody, residents and the students. Chuke, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck moving appreciate forward it. with this. Thank you so much. Have a lovely day. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.